Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, April 6th edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Ohio Races to Retool for Electric Car Revolution by Jack Ewing. Eric Bellmer has seen how tough the car business can be. He was working at a General Motors plant in Lordstown, Ohio, when it shut down in 2019, devastating the community. Mr. Bellmer, an industrial mechanic, got another job at a GM transmission factory in Toledo but his commute is now 140 miles each way. His schedule gives him just a few hours with his family and a few hours of sleep. Yet far from being bitter, Mr. Belmer says he is excited. GM is converting his factory to produce electric motors, part of an industrial transformation that will redefine manufacturing regions and jobs around the world. GM, Ford Motor, and other car makers announced investments of more than $50 billion in new factories in the United States last year, according to the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, Michigan. All but a small fraction of that money was to build and retool plants for electric vehicles and batteries. Mr. Belmer is one of thousands of people who will also have to pick up new skills. It's going to be a little bit of a learning curve, he said at the Toledo factory, but our guys are well equipped to handle this. Mr. Belmer and Ohio are bellwethers of how the transition to electric vehicles will play out. GM, Jeep, Honda Motor, and parts makers employ many thousands of people across the state. Ohio produces more internal combustion engines than any other state, making an adjustment to electric cars particularly urgent. Nearly 90,000 people work in Ohio for car makers or parts suppliers, and several times that many are employed by businesses that serve those auto workers and their families. The changes are putting Ohio at the forefront of a new technology that is critical to fighting climate change but some jobs will become obsolete and some companies will go bankrupt. It's an open question whether the winners will outnumber the losers. This is the largest transition in our industry since its inception, said Tony Toddy, the president of a United Auto Workers local that represents GM workers in Toledo. Mr. Toddy is optimistic about the members of his local, but he is worried about other colleagues whose jobs are tied to gasoline engines, he said. There's an expiration date on those facilities and those communities, Mr. Toddy said. Warren, in eastern Ohio, knows what happens when a car maker leaves town. The city has lost one-third of its population, about 20,000 people, since the 1970s, a process that accelerated after GM closed the factory in nearby Lordstown, which produced Chevrolet Cruze sedans in 2019. Sales of that car had been fading as more Americans chose sport utility vehicles. Even before that shutdown, auto production jobs had been declining. U.S. automakers and their parts suppliers employed about 1 million people at the end of 2018, down from more than 1.3 million in 2000. In the years before GM closed the Lordstown plant, it had reduced shifts and paired its workforce. Our biggest export in the last 20 years has been talented young people, said Rick Stockberger. He is the president of Bright Energy Innovators, an organization in Warren that offers workspace, advice, and funding to startups. Today, things are looking somewhat better. Ultium Cells, a joint venture of GM and LG Energy Solution, is ramping up production of batteries near the defunct factory. Foxconn, a Taiwanese manufacturer, has taken over the old GM plant and plans to produce electric vehicles and tractors there. The complex will also house an electric vehicle academy established by Foxconn and Youngstown State University to train workers. That surge in investment is helping to revive Warren's tidy but sleepy downtown, Doug Franklin, the mayor, who works for GM in Lordstown, said he was pleased recently to step into a local restaurant where nobody knew me because we had so many new people. Mr. Franklin represents the optimistic view that an industrial renaissance is underway.
The pandemic and the supply chain chaos that it caused have made companies leery of components produced far away. That experience, plus billions of dollars in federal subsidies, approved by Democrats last year, motivated manufacturers to build vehicles, batteries, and other components in the United States. We're seeing a new level of hope that I haven't seen in decades, Mr. Franklin said. But community leaders in Warren are also aware that the transition comes with risks. Hopes that the old plant will become a buzzing electric vehicle factory have not panned out so far. GM sold the factory to Lordstown Motors, a fledgling electric pickup truck company that ran into trouble and resold the plant to Foxconn. Executives at Foxconn, which has long assembled electronic devices but has little experience making cars, declined interview requests. It's not clear when the company will mass-produce electric vehicles in Lordstown, if ever. The Reverend Todd Johnson, the pastor of the Second Baptist Church in Warren, and a member of the city council, worries that his mostly African-American parishioners won't benefit from the new jobs. Mr. Johnson, whose parents worked for GM, encourages young people to study subjects like robotics and coding, and has led after-church trips to a science and technology center in nearby Youngstown. There are going to be opportunities coming, he said, and I desperately don't want to see the next generation of our children miss out. One pressing question is what will happen to people whose skills are no longer needed. GM is dealing with that issue at the Toledo factory, Toledo Propulsion Systems, which makes transmissions that electric cars won't need. The automaker has committed to retraining the Toledo workers to make electric motors, and to investing $760 million to convert assembly lines at the plant. If anything, GM will need more workers, said Eric Gonzalez, the executive director of the factory. As the factory replaces gasoline models with electric cars, we're taking the employees with us, he said. The GM factory in Toledo will show whether established automakers can compete with Tesla, the fast-growing automaker that can focus all of its resources on electric vehicles because that's all it makes. Established car makers need to keep earning money from internal combustion engines while ramping up a new technology that is not yet profitable. GM has an advantage, Mr. Gonzalez says, because it has factories equipped with sprinkler systems, high-voltage power, and other essentials. We already have the four walls here with the infrastructure, he said speaking above the din of clanking machinery. Somebody knew they have very expensive capital costs. Other auto executives prefer to start fresh. Volkswagen's new Scout Motors unit looked at sites in Ohio and other states to produce electric pickup trucks and SUVs, but chose to build a $2 billion factory in South Carolina. It's cheaper and easier to build from scratch, said Scott Keough, the chief executive of Scout. You're not juggling this classic dynamic of a legacy internal combustion engine plant where you need to inject a new electric vehicle, he said. Ohio is in intense competition with other states to attract investment. But Midwestern states, including Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois, have been less successful than states in the South, where Republican political leaders have courted investment aggressively, even as they denounced the Democratic policies that helped create the boom. Since 2020, Automakers have announced investments of $51 billion in electric vehicle and battery production in the South, compared with $31 billion in states in the Great Lakes region, according to the Center for Automotive Research. Southern states tend to have lower labor costs, in part because most auto plants there are not unionized. This could pose a problem for the United Auto Workers and President Biden, who want the switch to electric vehicles to create more high-paying union jobs. It could well be that most of the new electric car and battery jobs will end up in the South, where unions face political opposition, and not in the Midwest, where unions have political clout, and where most of the jobs lost in combustion engine vehicles once were. Ohio has some things going for it. 
In March, Honda Motor said that it would convert one of two assembly lines at its decades-old plant in Marysville, near Columbus, to build electric vehicles. Honda, a Japanese company, is also building a battery factory about an hour away in Jeffersonville with LG Energy Solution. In Ohio, Honda employs more than 14,000 people making cars and motors, and the company's plans will show whether electric vehicles, which require fewer parts than gasoline cars, will create or destroy jobs. For the next several years, the transition will probably create jobs as car makers make both gasoline and electric vehicles. Bob Nelson, the executive vice president of American Honda Motor, noted that at the moment, there was a shortage of skilled labor. We're going to need everybody, he said in Marysville, where Honda makes Accord sedans. What happens later is less certain. When you don't have the complexity that we're used to, with engines and transmissions and mufflers and radiators and exhaust systems and all of those components that aren't going to be there anymore, it makes me wonder what's left, said Bruce Baumauer, the president of a United Auto Workers local that represents employees of auto suppliers in Ohio. Dana Incorporated, based in Maumee, near Toledo, is also grappling with that question. Dana's employees, more than 40,000 of them, make axles, drive shafts, and other parts. Electric vehicles need axles, but typically do not need long drive shafts because the motors can be placed close to the wheels. James Kimsikas, Dana's chief executive, has spent time in China and has been struck by the proliferation of electric vehicles there. Recognizing the threat to some of Dana's products, he acquired several firms with expertise in electric motors and other technology. EPA to Tighten Limits on Power Plant Emissions by Lisa Friedman The Biden administration said Wednesday that it would require coal and oil-fired power plants to reduce emissions of several hazardous air pollutants, including mercury, which is a neurotoxin that can cause developmental problems in infants and children. The proposed rule from the Environmental Protection Agency has two broad policy aims. Reduce dangerous toxins in the environment, while also encouraging the transition away from coal-burning power plants and toward cleaner energy sources like solar and wind. The proposal sets up a likely legal battle with the coal industry and several Republican-led states, which fought to block a previous effort to regulate mercury under the Obama administration. The Obama-era rule, which took effect in 2012, was credited with reducing mercury emissions by about 90%. However, the EPA found that mercury coming from power plants still poses a risk to human health. So the new rule aims to strengthen the limits for mercury emissions from affected coal-burning power plants by 70%. It would also further restrict other toxic pollutants like lead, nickel, and arsenic. Michael S. Regan, the administrator of the EPA, said in a statement that the rule would not be expensive for plant operators to implement because of new technologies that are available for monitoring and controlling emissions. By leveraging proven emissions reduction measures available at reasonable costs and encouraging new advanced control technologies, we can reduce hazardous pollution from coal-fired power plants, protecting our planet and improving public health for all, Mr. Regan said. The new mercury and air toxics standards rule would not directly reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from power plants that are driving climate change, but it is one of several recent EPA regulations targeting toxins emitted from smokestacks and coal ash ponds that could have that effect indirectly by making coal plants too costly to operate. Mr. Regan has, in the past, suggested that an aspect of the Biden administration's climate strategy by cracking down on pollutants, is to encourage operators of coal plants to shut them down or make a transition to renewable energy. By presenting all of those rules at the same time to the industry, he said at an oil and gas conference last year, the industry gets a chance to take a look at this suite of rules all at once and say, is it worth doubling down in investments in this current facility, 
Or should we look at that cost and say now is the time to pivot and invest in a clean energy future? On Wednesday, Mr. Reagan said the new rule would ensure historic protections for communities located near power plants. Known as fence line communities, they are typically home to low-income people of color who suffer from elevated rates of asthma, cancer, and other health effects. The Biden administration has made it a priority to address the disproportionate environmental burdens carried by such communities. The proposal drew criticism from Republicans and the coal industry. Michelle Bloodworth, president and chief executive of America's Power, a trade group that advocates for coal-powered electricity, said that the industry is concerned that the combined effect of the EPA's regulations will lead to premature retirement of coal plants. The industry group has argued that if coal plants shutter too quickly, it will hurt the reliability of the electricity grid. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, said the Biden administration continues to wage war on coal with the regulation. Ms. Capito called the regulation unnecessary and said that it put politics over sound policy. Democrats praised the proposal and said it will lead to health improvements nationwide. The mercury and air toxics standards continue to be a remarkable, cost-effective success in reducing mercury and other toxic air pollution, said Senator Tom Carper, Democrat of Delaware. He is chairman of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. He said the new rule will help save lives. The EPA estimated that the health benefits over the lifetime of the rule would be between $2.4 billion and $3 billion from the prevention of deaths or hospitalizations for respiratory and cardiovascular disease. The agency put the estimated cost to the industry of complying with the rule at between $230 million and $300 million. Childhood exposure to mercury has very profound health effects, said Matthew Davis. He is a vice president of federal policy at the League of Conservation Voters and a former EPA official whose research underpinned the first rules cutting mercury emissions from coal power plants. He called the proposed rule significant. On top of that, we are seeing the climate impacts from fossil fuel combustion, and certainly coal plants are contributing to that crisis, Mr. Davis said. So any rules that address coal-fired power plants and perhaps make it less viable for some of those to continue operating also has a big impact on our transition to cleaner energy. The EPA will accept public comments on the proposed rule for 60 days and will hold a public hearing before the final rule would take effect, most likely next year. Many Republican lawmakers are expected to oppose the rule. Last month, the Biden administration restored a rule that gives the government a legal foundation to regulate mercury, which had been stripped away by the Trump administration. The Biden administration's move also prompted criticism from coal state lawmakers at the time. The Biden administration is pairing regulations with offers to provide financial help to coal communities. On Monday, the White House announced that it was making a $450 million available for solar farms and other clean energy projects at the site of current or former coal mines. In making the announcement, the White House took a jab at the Trump administration, which had promised and failed to deliver a coal renaissance. President Biden came to the White House to end years of big words but little action to help energy-producing parts of the country, a White House fact sheet said. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Justice Department makes $144.5 million deal with victims of Texas Church Massacre by Glenn Thrush. The Justice Department has reached a $144.5 million settlement with the families of 26 people killed in a 2017 mass shooting at a church in Texas. 
the settlement follows an acrimonious legal battle in which the government claimed that it was not liable for its failure to update the National Firearms Background Check System. The Associate Attorney General, Vanita Gupta, who oversees the Civil Division, has signed off on the deal, which was negotiated with lawyers representing the families of victims and survivors who had been gathered for Sunday worship at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, outside San Antonio. The settlement is among the largest of its kind, exceeding previous ones the department reached over mass shootings that stemmed from the government's failure to take steps to prevent mass shootings by sharing intelligence and other information that might have been used to stop them. In recent years, the department paid out $127.5 million to the victims of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018, and $88 million to the families of those killed or injured in the church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. In February 2022, Judge Xavier Rodriguez of the Federal District Court in San Antonio found that Air Force officials had failed to submit crucial records that would have prevented the suspect in the Sutherland Spring shooting from obtaining from a licensed gun dealer the semi-automatic rifle that he used in the attack. Those documents included a domestic violence conviction by a military court. But months of negotiations failed to end in a deal. Late last year, after an attempt at mediation with lawyers for the families of those killed and injured, the government withdrew from negotiations and appealed the decision. That angered the families, their lawyers, and gun control groups, which viewed the case as a crucial test of the Biden administration's commitment to addressing the government's responsibility to keep weapons out of the hands of mass shooters. In January, the Justice Department took the extraordinary step of appealing Judge Rodriguez's $230 million award to the families. At the time, Brian M. Boynton, the head of the Civil Division, acknowledged that there was no dispute that the U.S. Air Force personnel failed to submit to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System crucial information about the killer, Devin Patrick Kelly, 26, who opened fire at the First Baptist Church. The Sutherland Springs families are heroes, Jamal K. Asafar, the lead lawyer for the families, said on Wednesday. They have gone through so much pain and loss in the most horrific way. But despite that, these families fought for justice, endured, and won two trials against the federal government. These settlements will resolve claims by more than 75 plaintiffs, according to a department spokeswoman. The settlement still needs the approval of the judge, but both sides expect he will sign off. No words or amount of money can diminish the immense tragedy of the mass shooting in Sutherland Springs, Ms. Gupta said. Today's announcement brings the litigation to a close, ending a painful chapter for the victims of this unthinkable crime. The Legacy of a Black American Who Fought for Australia's Rights by Damien Cave Reporting from Bendigo, Australia The unmarked grave of John Joseph must have been stepped on a thousand times, by miners from his own era of gold-hunting 1850s Australia, and then by generations of future fortune seekers. No one seemed to care much about the black American who had helped forge Australian democracy, who had been tried for treason by the British colonial authorities, and whose acquittal sparked a street celebration in Melbourne, where he was carried shoulder-high into a sea of 10,000 people. Mr. Joseph's legacy simply faded, like a puff of dust on Australia's arid plains, which is where he ended up. In the scruffy town of Bendigo, in a cemetery called White Hills near Chinese, Irish, and Jewish migrants, most of them had gravestones hard and heavy. He did not. Until last month, when Caroline Kennedy, the United States ambassador to Australia, unveiled a new plaque with a shiny American flag and a summary of Mr. Joseph's life. His story is one for our time too, she said at a formal ceremony with a crowd of American and Australian officials. As we face this history, we can ask ourselves, 
Who is missing from today's narrative, and what is our responsibility to make sure they're included? A Bendigo historian on her left held a crinkled page from the archives showing that Mr. Joseph was buried on July 25th, 1858. His memorial service began nearly 165 years later, and more than 168 years after the Eureka Rebellion, the uprising that had propelled him to prominence after miners seeking a more just government clashed with British troops, leaving around 30 people dead and leading to the arrest of Mr. Joseph and more than 100 others. Why it took so long for him and his burial site to be recognized is partly a familiar story of racism and erasure. Australia's birth as an independent nation included a White Australia program started in 1901 that barred non-white immigration, and the policy was fully dismantled only in the 1970s. Even now, scholarly interest in Australia's multiracial past is limited, and the country has still failed to negotiate a treaty with the continent's aboriginal inhabitants. But while historians have tended to overlook figures like Mr. Joseph, and he may not have sought the spotlight in the first place, his actions and the public's response still paved the way for reforms that made Australia more democratic. In death, he left unanswered questions and one remarkable legal triumph that still resonates. He was accused, a black man and an American, of fatally shooting a British officer in the 1854 rebellion. His fate seemed sealed but an all-white jury set the black man free. Mr. Joseph died a few years later with no known descendants, and a handful of Australians spent a decade fighting to honor him. It's almost laughable, right? said Donald Betts Jr., a former Kansas state senator who lives in Australia and came to the ceremony to celebrate a fellow black American immigrant. It makes you want to cry at the same time. Who was John Joseph? News accounts from the time of his trial said he came from Boston, New York, or maybe Baltimore. Historians believe he reached Australia's goldfields after working the seas, a common occurrence at the time as mariners jumped ship to search for gold. A place called Ballarat, north of Melbourne, that was the place to be. Gold had been discovered there in 1851. The world soon arrived with around 6,000 new miners, diggers as they came to be known, showing up in town every week at the boom's peak. When Mr. Joseph set foot in Ballarat a few years later, the town was teeming with activity and tension. The easy gold found by panning was gone. The government did not allow the miners to own land on the gold fields or to vote, so the town was a tent city of the disenfranchised, marked by noise, mine shafts, and flags marking different enclaves. Many Americans arrived from the California gold rush, and there were plenty of Europeans, but the miners came from all over, representing a wide range of ethnicities and religions. There are Hindus, there are Maori, and people from Africa too, said Claire Wright, a history professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne. She's the author of The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. And they're all there for the same thing, to find gold, she said. In debt and hoping to reduce migration, the colonial government imposed a monthly license fee in 1853 that most diggers could not afford. Seeking bribes or payback, corrupt police officers checked for the licenses and rates that sparked outrage and led to a merger of violence and politics. In October 1854, a Scottish miner was killed at the Eureka Hotel in Ballarat. When the accused was exonerated, he was the hotel's owner and a friend of the constable, a group of miners burned down the Eureka and were arrested. A few weeks later, after another license hunt by the police, An Irishman named Peter Laylor tried to unify Ballarat's miners under one thing they saw every night, the Stars of the Southern Cross. He unfurled a flag with the constellation and led an oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other, 
and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Peter Fitzsimmon, an Australian author of a 2013 book about Eureka, called it our version of the Boston Tea Party, an uprising on the basis of no taxes without representation. What the men craved was not revolution, but rather the right to buy land and vote. They wanted to have a seat at the table, Professor Wright said. They didn't want to overthrow the table. But they did expect a fight. Grabbing timber from mine shafts and horse carts, they built a fort, the Eureka Stockade. Families and workers ended up behind the fence line. John Joseph did too. In his 30s, older than most of the miners, he was a recent arrival to Ballarat, running a business under a tent selling refreshments. When 300 British soldiers and police officers appeared at 3 a.m. on December 3rd, Mr. Layler reportedly called on the Americans whom he trusted to be loyal. California Rangers to the front, he shouted. And there was Mr. Joseph, witnesses said, with a double-barreled shotgun. Gunfire pounded for 15 minutes. The authorities sent fire to tents to flush out insurgents. More than 20 diggers died. At least four soldiers were also killed in the battle. Captain Henry Wise, the most popular officer in the division, was shot in the knee and died a few days later from an infection. Mr. Joseph was blamed for his death. Of the 125 miners arrested in the smoke and flame after the clash, only 13 were charged. At least two Americans caught up in the mess received legal assistance from the U.S. consulate. Mr. Joseph did not. The United States did not grant due process to African Americans at home in the 1850s, a point of national shame noted by Ambassador Kennedy in her speech. Overseas, the U.S. government treated Mr. Joseph like a non-entity. He was the first to face trial in 18... 18- 55, in Melbourne, the colony of Victoria's capital, partly because prosecutors believed he would be the easiest to convict. He pleaded not guilty, insisting he had arrived in Ballarat after the Southern Cross gathering and was simply in town to make a living. Over a few days of testimony, witnesses placed Mr. Joseph on the front lines of the battle. His lawyers argued that in the darkness before dawn, it was impossible to identify who fired. But since the charge was treason, not murder, they mostly focused on intent. Appealing to racist stereotypes of the age, they argued that Mr. Joseph was too much of a simpleton to have committed high treason. According to one of his lawyers, his client declined to be made a hero of, although among the diggers, he was seen as an ally. Raffaello Carboni, an Italian Eureka leader who had spent time with Mr. Joseph in jail before the trial, said that Mr. Joseph had a warm, good, honest, kind, cheerful heart and a sober, plain, matter-of-fact, contented mind. The jury seemed to reach a similar conclusion. The group returned quickly from deliberations, finding Mr. Joseph not guilty. Pandemonium filled the courtroom. Around 10,000 people had packed the courtroom and the streets to hear the verdict, and Mr. Joseph was treated like a victorious general. On emerging from the courthouse, he was put in a chair and carried round the streets of the city in triumph, wrote the Ballarat Star, a local newspaper. All the other trials ended in acquittals or dismissals. The government soon gave in to the diggers' broad demands. Miners would be allowed to buy land. Men would be given the vote. In a dispatch from London, Karl Marx, the father of communism, described Eureka as distinct from the American Revolution because the uprising had been initiated by the workers. And then Eureka faded. The diggers went back to digging. Mr. Joseph moved on to Bendigo, another mining town, where a neighborhood called California Gully, marked by low-slung Victorian houses, suggests there were plenty of Americans nearby but there is no known mention of Mr. Joseph in local newspapers after his trial in 1855. Three years later, at 41, he died, probably from a heart attack based on hospital records. 
No one knows if he was mourned by friends at the grave or if his relatives were notified. Martin Callanan's great-great-great-grandfather was an Irish miner who fought at the stockade. His own father had taken him for walks in the White Hills Cemetery, explaining that somewhere beneath their feet lay the body of a black American freedom fighter. In 2013, Mr. Callanan wrote a letter to Kim Beasley, Australia's ambassador to the United States, urging more recognition for Mr. Joseph. He said he never heard back. Eureka had become a boutique and often divisive subject. In the 1990s, the local Southern Cross flag signaled support for unions, workers' rights, or communism. More recently, it has become associated with right-wing white nationalists. It's been used by some complete nutters, Mr. Callanan said. That confuses a lot of things. Inside the U.S. consulate in Melbourne, Gabriel Connellan, a cultural affairs specialist, held firm to the idea that Eureka was about fighting tyranny. She repeatedly shared Mr. Callanan's letter and suggested doing something for Mr. Joseph. Over the past year, intense discussions around race and history in America and Australia added urgency. White Hills agreed to find the location of Mr. Joseph's grave. Ambassador Kennedy found time in her schedule. The stars just kind of aligned, said Kathleen Lively, the U.S. Consul General in Melbourne. She acknowledged the bureaucracy had been slow. Punctuating the point, a quote from Mark Twain appeared at the bottom of Mr. Joseph's gravestone, praising the Eureka Rebellion as a strike for liberty, a struggle for principle, a stand against injustice and oppression. He wrote that line after visiting the goldfields in 1895. Santilla Shingape, an Australian journalist who featured Mr. Joseph's story in a documentary about the country's forgotten black history, also the subject of a book she's writing, called his eventual day of recognition bittersweet. She spoke at the event, then watched as descendants of the Eureka fighters eagerly helped Ms. Kennedy plant a new American oak tree at Mr. Joseph's grave. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Obituary. Klaus Tueva, who created the board game Catan, is dead at 70, by Neil Genslinger. Klaus Tueva, who 28 years ago created the Settlers of Catan, died on Saturday. He was 70. The enduringly popular board game has spawned college intramural teams and international tournaments, has been name-checked on South Park and Parks and Recreation, and inspired a novel, and sold some 40 million copies worldwide. Catan GmbH, which publishes and licenses the game, now known simply as Catan, posted news of his death on its website. It said only that he died after a short illness and did not say where. Mr. Tuweber was managing a dental lab, a job he found stressful, when he began designing games as a way to unwind. In the beginning, these games were just for me, he told Forbes in 2016. I always have stories in my head. I would read a book, and if I liked it, I wanted to experience it as a game. That was the origin of his first big success, a game called Barbarossa, which grew out of his admiration for the Riddle Master trilogy, fantasy books written in the 1970s by Patricia A. McKillop. I was sorry to see it come to an end, he told The New Yorker in 2014, so I tried to experience this novel in a game. In 1988, the game won the Game of the Year Award in Germany, considered the most prestigious award in the board game world, Germany being particularly enthusiastic about board games. He won that award twice more, in 1990 for Hoity Toity, and in 1991 for Wacky Wacky West, before scoring his biggest success with what was known in German as Die Siedler von Katan. 
In that game, players build settlements in a new land by collecting brick, lumber, wool, ore, and grain. Trading with other players is part of the strategy, lending a social element to gameplay. In 1995, the game won both the Game of the Year Award and the German Games Award. It caught on first in Germany and then, as editions in other languages became available, all over. If a fantasy trilogy had been the inspiration for Barbarossa, Catan owed its existence to nothing but Mr. Tuiber's imagination and his long-standing interest in Viking history. When I read about the Vikings, when they discovered Iceland, he said in Going Cardboard, a 2012 documentary, I thought, what would happen if some explorers come to an island where there's no one? What will they do? Instead of being inspired by a novel, his board game inspired one. The Settlers of Catan by Rebecca Gable was published in 2011. The game has also been reimagined in various ways, including some video game and online incarnations. Eric Freeman, the 2022 United States Catan champion, said that during the coronavirus pandemic, he and many others found the online version of the game to be an antidote to isolation. He and some friends started a virtual league that grew to more than 60 people. Incredible lifelong friendships, as well as professional connections, were born as a result, Mr. Freeman said by email. During the dark and isolating days of early COVID and quarantine, this board game gave us something to be excited about, a reason to connect beyond the simple Zoom happy hour and a feeling of belonging. Mr. Tueva told Wired in 2009 that creating Catan felt different than his other efforts. I felt like I was discovering something rather than inventing it, he said. The initial run of 5,000 sold out so quickly, according to Wired, that he didn't even have a first edition version. Within a few years, he was able to give up that stressful day job and devote himself to games full-time. Catan has widely been hailed as a challenging yet intuitive game. Children play it. And it has been credited with jumpstarting a new era of board games which moved beyond the staid confines of Scrabble and Monopoly. Instead of siddling idly while other players take their turns as in Monopoly, Catan invites constant wheeling and dealing. The secret of Catan, Mr. Tueva told Wired, is that you have to bargain and sometimes whine. For Mr. Freeman, that is what elevates it above older games. I truly believe Klaus created the greatest board game of all time, Freeman said. Both complicated and approachable, it combines skill, luck, strategy, and my favorite aspect, the power of persuasion. You can't talk your way into winning a game of chess, but you certainly can in Catan. Readers Torn by Push to Revise Classics for Modern Sensibilities by Alexandra Alter and Elizabeth A. Harris The estates of several revered literary figures are altering portions of well-known works to conform to current sensibilities, stirring a heated debate among readers and the literary world over whether and how classics should be updated. In Agatha Christie's novels, terms like Oriental, Gypsy, and Native have been taken out and revised versions of Ian Fleming's James Bond books will be scrubbed of racist and sexist phrases. Classics by Roald Dahl have been stripped of adjectives like fat and ugly, along with references to characters' gender and skin color. While some changes have been made to books published in decades past, often with little fanfare, many of the current attempts to remove offensive language are systematic and have drawn intense public scrutiny. The effort has left publishers and literary estates grappling with how to preserve an author's original intent while ensuring that their work continues to resonate and sell. Finding the right balance is a delicate act, part business decision, part artful conjuring of the worldview of an author from another era in order to adapt it to the present. 
My great-grandmother would not have wanted to offend anyone, said James Pritchard, Christie's great-grandson and the chairman and chief executive of Agatha Christie Limited. I don't believe we need to leave what I would term offensive language in our books, because frankly all I care about is that people can enjoy Agatha Christie stories forever. The financial and cultural stakes of the exercise are enormous. Authors like Dahl, Christie, and Fleming have, together, sold billions of copies of books, and their novels have spawned lucrative film franchises. In 2021, Netflix bought the Roald Dahl Story Company, including rights for classics such as the BFG, for a reported $1 billion. Leaving the works unchanged, with offensive and sometimes blatantly racist phrases throughout, could alienate new audiences and damage an author's reputation and legacy. But altering a text carries its own risks. Critics say editing books posthumously is an affront to authors' creative autonomy and can amount to censorship, and that even a well-intentioned effort to weed out bigotry can open the door to more pervasive changes. You want to think about the precedent that you're setting, and what would happen if someone of a different predisposition or ideology were to pick up the pen and start crossing things out, said Suzanne Nossel, the chief executive of PEN America. Changes could also remake the literary and historical record by deleting evidence of an author's racial and cultural prejudices and eroding literature's ability to reflect the place and time in which it was creative. Sometimes the historical value is intimately intertwined with why something is offensive, Nossel said. Then there's the chance that readers who cherish the original works will revolt. Fans of Dahl were outraged in February by the news that his British publisher had changed hundreds of words in his children's books. Initially reported by The Telegraph, a British newspaper, the changes were made after Dahl's estate began a review of the author's works in 2020, and hired the consultancy Inclusive Minds, which aims to promote inclusion and accessibility in children's literature, to evaluate the books. The backlash was immediate. Salman Rushdie called the edits absurd censorship, and tweeted that the Dahl estate should be ashamed. Philip Pullman told BBC Radio 4, it would be better to let Dahl's books go out of print than to change them without the author's consent. The outcry was so intense that Dahl's publisher, Puffin, announced that it would keep unaltered texts in print for readers who prefer the originals. It's not unusual to review the language used alongside updating other details, including a book's cover and page layout. Rick Bahari, a spokesman for Roald Dahl Story Company, said in a statement issued in February. He added that they sought to preserve the irreverence and sharp-edged spirit of the original text. The question of how to handle offensive language, particularly racist terms and images, in classic texts has long been an issue in children's literature. About a decade ago, an edition of Huckleberry Finn replaced a racial epithet with the word slave over concerns that such an offensive word was causing schools to stop assigning the novel. In more extreme cases, titles have been taken out of circulation. In 2007, Tintin in the Congo by Herge was removed from the children's section in libraries and bookstores over concerns about racism. The book is no longer widely available in the United States. More recently, Dr. Seuss's estate announced that six of his books would no longer be published because they contained egregious racial and ethnic stereotypes. Among those titles was his first children's book, originally published in 1937, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street which included a crude caricature of an Asian man. While older texts regularly get updated when they are reprinted, publishers and estates have in recent years begun to search literary classics more systematically to find and alter passages that might offend readers. In many cases, publishers say, the interventions involve a handful of words and don't impact the overall story. 
Some in the publishing industry see efforts to make older works more inclusive as a sign of progress, provided that the changes are made carefully and not as a thoughtless erasure of offensive terms without accounting for more subtle and pervasive bias in a writer's worldview. I think it's a good practice, the same way you update textbooks, said Hannah Gomez, who oversees a team of sensitivity editors at Kevin Anderson and Associates, a company that provides cultural accuracy reads and other editorial services to authors and publishers. The big problem is treating cultural accuracy or sensitivity as something that can easily be inserted or replaced. Some authors, when faced with criticism over offensive passages, responded by changing their books. Dahl, in the 1970s, made changes to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Faced with complaints that his depiction of the factory workers as dark-skinned pygmies from Africa was racist, he changed the workers into Oompa Loompas, small people from a fictional country called Loompa Land. But when the author is no longer alive, the posthumous revision process can be more fraught. Theo Downs Le Guin, the son of and literary executor for Ursula K. Le Guin, the science fiction writer, was surprised when he got an email from a publisher late last year asking for permission to make changes to her children's series Cat Wings. First published in 1988, the books follow a group of kittens who were born with wings. At first, he was torn about whether he should approve the edits, which consisted of a handful of words across several books. Ursula was extremely careful with her words, so a substitute is never going to have exactly the same meaning, he said in an interview. He ultimately decided that the revisions would benefit readers. In the new editions, which will be released this fall by Simon & Schuster's Athenium books, a handful of words, including lame and dumb, have been replaced, and a note has been added to alert readers about the update. A little bit of language nuance is going to be lost, but something is also gained, Downs Le Guin said. What we gain is the potential to not give offense. Digital Books You Bought, Altered Before Your Very Eyes by Reggie Ugwu Amid recent debates over several publishers' removal of potentially offensive material from the work of popular 20th century authors, including Roald Dahl, R.L. Stein, and Agatha Christie, is a less discussed but no less thorny question about the method of revisions. For some ebook owners, the changes appeared as if made by a book thief in the night, quietly and with no clear evidence of a disturbance. In Britain, Clarissa Ackroyd, a Kindle reader of Dahl's Matilda, watched a reference to Joseph Conrad disappear. U.S. editions of Dahl's books were unaffected. Owners of Stein's Goosebumps books lost mention of schoolgirls' crushes on a headmaster and a description of an overweight character with at least six chins. Racial and ethnic slurs were snipped out of Christie's mysteries. In each case, ebooks that had been published and sold in one form were retroactively and irrevocably altered, highlighting what consumer rights experts say is a convention of digital publishing that customers may never notice or realize they signed up for. Buying an ebook doesn't necessarily mean it's yours. Nobody reads the terms of service, but these companies reserve the right to go in there and change things around, said Jason Schultz, the director of New York University's Technology, Law, and Policy Clinic, and a co-author of The End of Ownership. They make it feel similar to buying a physical book, but in reality, it's 180 degrees different, he added. Automatic ebook updates are a common feature of many popular ebook platforms, including Amazon's Kindle and Google Play. A typical update might change a book's cover to match a new film or television adaptation, or add material in response to new developments in a story. But publishers can issue updates for any reason and generally don't identify or explain revisions. The edits to Stein's and Christie's novels came to wide attention only when they were reported this month by the Times of London and The Telegraph, years after having been pushed out to readers. Derek Wheeler, 
a Kindle user in Washington who noticed last year that his ebook of Stein's Welcome to Dead House had been changed from the print edition, said he hadn't realized the full implication of the updates, which Amazon turns on by default. It's unclear when Scholastic, Stein's publisher, made the revisions, which advanced the story's timeline by several years, among other changes. It's nice if they can fix grammatical errors, but changing details that can fundamentally alter the story bothers me, Mr. Wheeler said. Users can turn off automatic updates in their Amazon preferences. In a statement, a spokeswoman for the company said that publishers control the copyright for the books they publish and so control the content and updating of their Kindle books. Google Play automatically updates ebooks with no option to opt out. A representative for Google declined to comment. Representatives for Stein and Scholastic didn't respond to requests for comment, but the author has said publicly that he was unaware of recent changes to his books. Terry Adams, a vice president who runs paperback and digital publishing at Little Brown and Company, whose authors include James Patterson, Evelyn Waugh, and Donna Tartt, said the company regularly makes corrections to ebooks at editors' and authors' discretion, fixing factual errors and typos, rewording phrases, and adding new passages, among other changes. These edits are typically not recorded publicly, Adam said, in line with industry standards. Representatives for other major book publishers either declined to comment about their ebook policies or didn't respond to multiple requests for comment. Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, and Simon & Schuster declined to comment. Macmillan didn't respond to multiple requests for comment. Readers of fine print have long noted the legal loophole that grants publishers vast control over content in most popular digital libraries. Customers don't technically own the content they purchase on these platforms, but license it from the copyright holder. Licensing, which allows rights owners to set the terms of the use of their intellectual property, is the standard not only in sales of ebooks, but of movies, television shows, video games, and other forms of artistic content. Sales of many kinds of physical media, including print and disc formats, are also governed by licenses. But digital platforms allow publishers to more easily and precisely manage content than before. In the past, there were restrictions to what you could do with media. You could only make a certain number of copies, for example. But there was no really effective way of policing that, said Colin Gavahan, professor of digital futures at the University of Bristol Law School. Now the owner can just directly control what you do with these things. Subscription-based streaming services, like Netflix and Spotify, imply conditional access to libraries whose content can change. Last year, the singers Beyoncé and Lizzo both edited songs after release to remove a word some listeners found offensive. But the language used by many popular digital media stores can be misleading about ownership, experts said. Visitors to Amazon's Kindle store purchase books by clicking the company's familiar Buy Now button. Text throughout the store, including the description of automatic book updates, even declares that the users own their books. But Kindle's terms of use make clear that content on the platform is in fact licensed, not sold to you, by the content provider. Media purchased through Apple's portals, which use similar ownership language, including books, movies, TV shows, music, and video games, may be removed or become unavailable for further download or access at any time and for unspecified reasons, according to the company's terms and conditions. And Google Play's terms of service refer to certain cases in which the company may remove your device or cease providing you with access to certain content that you have purchased. Representatives for Apple did not respond to requests for comment. There are streaming services out there where nobody rationally thinks that they own the movies or music they stream, but a lot of this other stuff is sold to people as if they own it, Schultz said. If these companies are going to reserve all these rights to remove or change things at any moment, 
there should be something that they tell you up front in big letters, not the fine print. Though most common in ebook publishing, post purchase edits could be deployed for other kinds of digital media that are stored on a platform that works with content owners, experts said. In recent years, some customers have reported lost access to video content, movies or television shows that vanish after a change in copyright ownership, or that are pulled from stores for outre material, as it happened in 2020 with several episodes of 30 Rock featuring blackface. In 2021, a federal judge dismissed a lawsuit claiming that Amazon's video store was designed to deceive, mislead, and defraud consumers for technical reasons. But there appear to be few examples of retroactive editing to films or television shows to date. Gavahan, the digital futures professor, said he expects the fate of such a case will someday be decided in court. I've been watching for that for a while, he said. Once the capacity is there, it's only a matter of time. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Top Irish Writers Are Starting Here by Max Ufberg Before Sally Rooney was the author of best-selling books, and well before those books became buzzy television series, she was an undergraduate student at Trinity College Dublin with a growing pile of unpublished poems and no contacts in the writing world. Her first break came in 2010 when The Stinging Fly, a small Irish literary magazine, agreed to publish her work. For Colin Barrett, that career turning point arrived in 2009 with the publication of his short story Let's Go Kill Ourselves and The Stinging Fly. Four years later, Barrett's debut collection, Young Skins, was released via the magazine's adjacent press to international acclaim. Barrett went on to win the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. The Stinging Fly has been something of a revelation in Irish literature. Founded in Dublin in 1997 by Declan Mead and Aoife Cavanaugh as a receptacle for all this great writing floating around, as Mead said, it earned government support and has reached its 25th year as a launching pad for some of the country's most promising and, in time, some of its best-known poets and novelists. As such, it also has become a prime poaching ground for editors in other countries hungry for Irish talent. Many of the most prominent Irish writers to emerge in the last 20 years were published in the magazine at an early point in their development, I think, said Sally Rooney in an email. She remains active with the organization, serving as the chair of its board of directors and even stepping in as the editor between 2017 and 2018. Rooney bears no relation to Dan Rooney, the American executive and namesake behind the Rooney Prize. Beyond the opportunity to get published, Barrett said, The Stinging Fly also offers writers a network of peers, another essential source of support. It really introduced me to the literary community, said Barrett. I had never met a writer up until then. It was just a very remote thing that mainly dead people had done. That community was something Mead himself had to seek out. Born the fifth of eight children in a farming family in Ardee, a town of a few thousand in County Louth, Mead was the first in his family to graduate college, earning a business degree from Ulster University. But thanks to authors like John Steinbeck and Alice Munro, Mead knew he wanted a life of letters. With little purchase in the literary world himself, he left Ireland to work at an independent bookstore in Atlanta. After moving back a year later for a job with the James Joyce Center in Dublin, Mead joined a few writing groups. It was there that he met more than a few disgruntled authors who complained about the lack of opportunity for newcomers. From those conversations, The Stinging Fly was born. Kavanaugh helped edit the first two issues, but then left to pursue a career in education. 
I kind of thought what we were doing was somehow revolutionary or unique, Mead said with characteristic self-deprecation. It was only when I started doing it that I looked around a bit more and saw that literary magazines were a thing. Putting aside the question of ingenuity, the end result has most certainly been a boon for Irish literature. Though The Stinging Fly has only around 1,000 subscribers and an overall circulation of 2,000, it has proved to be an excellent springboard for budding writers. We want to be representative of what's actually happening in Irish writing, and we want to publish as diverse a lineup every time as possible, said Lisa McGearney, who took over as editor of The Stinging Fly last year. Mead stepped back from editing duties in 2017 to focus on business operations, and the magazine cycled through a few short-term editors in the interim, including Rooney. By that same token, The Stinging Fly has become a hub for editors in search of new talent. I really look to them for exciting new Irish voices, said Katie Race Ann, a senior editor at the U.S. publisher Grove Atlantic, who recently worked on Homesickness, Barrett's second story collection. With a stinging fly author, you're getting something interesting on the level of the line, as well as obviously the overall story and character. The work is made possible by reliable support from the government. The Arts Council, an Irish government agency, has been supporting the outlet since 1998. For 2023, the council has allocated about $200,000 to the stinging fly, an increase over the approximately $180,000 it gave in 2022. Since 2021, the outfit has also been aided by the T.S. Eliot Foundation, a charity. Audrey Keane, a literary manager at the Arts Council, also commended the stinging fly for its efforts addressing the paying conditions for writers. In the often miserly world of literary magazines, it offers healthy rates. Fiction and nonfiction entries can net writers as much as $1,300 per piece. As to what the stinging fly and meat in particular are looking for in a poem or story, there's no simple answer. The main thing is that I am looking for excitement, he said after a long pause, a sense of something I've not read before that reflects a singular take on the world. A better explanation of Mead's prowess comes not from the man himself, but rather from those whose words he's touched. Declan is a very good line editor, and a good close reader, but I think what he has essentially as an editor is taste, said Kevin Barry, another stinging fly veteran, by email. In 2004, Barry said he approached Mead with a half dozen very short stories. Mead suggested that with a few more, he might have the bones of a collection. Three years later, that collection, There Are Little Kingdoms, was released via Stinging Fly Press, earning Barry the Rooney Prize. It remains the press's best-selling book, according to Mead. He recognizes the moment when a writer is starting to hit their stride, Barry said, and tries to help with the momentum. Just for us comedian will bring his show to Broadway by Michael Paulson. Alex Edelman, a comedian who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home and turned the anti-Semitism of his online critics into material for his monologues, will bring his much-admired memoiristic show Just For Us to Broadway this summer. For the past five years, Edelman, 34, has been developing Just For Us, and, with breaks forced by the pandemic, has performed it in Australia, England, Scotland, and Canada, as well as in New York, Washington, and, beginning next week, Boston near where he grew up. The show's sold-out off-Broadway runs, which started at the Cherry Lane Theater in 2021 and moved last year to the Soho Playhouse and then the Greenwich House Theater, won a special citation this year at the Obie Awards. The one-man show covers a lot of thematic territory, but it is built around Edelman's seemingly unlikely, and perhaps unwise, decision to drop in on a meeting of white nationalists gathered in Queens. The show is about the costs of sublimating parts of ourselves to fit in, Edelman said in an interview. 
The Broadway run, scheduled to last for eight weeks, will begin performances on June 22nd and open on June 26th at Hudson Theatre. The lead producer, Jenny Gersten, is the interim artistic director of the Williamstown Theatre Festival in Massachusetts, which presented Edelman's show last summer in the Berkshires. This will be Gersten's first Broadway outing as a lead producer. She will produce it along with Rachel Sussman and Seaview, the theatre company established by Greg Nobile and Jana Shea. Seaview is also producing this season's Parade and The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. Edelman said he had repeatedly reworked the show, primarily at the advice of comedian Mike Berbiglia, who has had two of his one-man shows on Broadway. Berbiglia produced the off-Broadway runs of Edelman's show and will help produce the Broadway run as well. The show is directed by Adam Brace, who is an associate director at Soho Theatre in London. Edelman splits his time between New York and Los Angeles, where he has done some screenwriting. He worked on an adaptation of the novel My Name is Asher Love that has stalled, and said he continues to tweak just for us. A variety of prominent comedians have come to see the show, including Jerry Seinfeld and Billy Crystal, and each time, Edelman has made a point of asking for advice. Part of the reason you can live with a show for a long time is if your meticulous little changes feel like big changes. One word can change a whole joke, Edelman said. He is obviously jubilant about the Broadway transfer. He visited the Hudson where Jessica Chastain and Ariane Moyad, who are now staring there in a revival of A Doll's House, showed him around. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the April 6, 2023 edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.